from the Neighborhood Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. So we are continuing our series and ending our series. I should have warned you. I know it's very traumatic when we have the greatest series of all time that we have to end. Um, It was only two weeks long. It's called For the Bible Tells Me So, which comes from the song, um, Yes, Jesus Loves Me, For the Bible Tells Me So. Who knows that song? Who sang that song? All right, yeah, yeah. Um, No, I do not want, no, please, no, we're not. Um, for the Bible tells me so, and it's true, right? The Bible does inform us that God is a huge fan of us. Um, but if I had, like, four-year-old Billy and say, hey, Chris, Pastor Chris, uh, the Bible t- says that God loves me. I'd say, where is it in the Bible, Billy? Right? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, right? But um, it's true. Like, in the Gospels, it talks about how Jesus is a big fan of us and loves us. Um, and the, the Hebrew Bible, a little different of a story, but God, you know, does love us. But if you, like, start reading through, like, Ephesians, and you start reading through Titus and First and Second Timothy and Colossians, um, you would see some ways that God loves us. But you'd also run into some, some things that say, like, in First Peter, and says, hey, enslaved people, if you are suffering at the hands of your master, just be encouraged that also Christ suffered too. Yeah, right? You're not going to read that and be like, whoa, I feel really good about myself, right? That's in the Bible. If you were reading with Billy, you said, Billy, let's read Ephesians 5, and it talks about how Christ is the head of the church and how men should be the head of the household. No one cheered? All right? Yeah, and then, and then and in Ephesians 5.21, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Whoa, put that on a pillow, right? And, like, what are we supposed to do with the problematic verses that are in the Bible, because they are there. You have a couple options. You could rip those parts out, right? You would have a lot of chunks in the Bible. Um, people have said, Chris, you just take a marker and just, like, go over Romans 1, 18 through 32. I'm like, no, I don't. All right, I read it. Or we have the option of thinking critically about what this sacred scripture is, because here's the Bible. Um, you have a couple different ways of reading the Bible. I, I see the Bible as beautiful, problematic, conflicting, and totally inspiring, which is really good because that's the same as you, right? We are problematic, we are inspiring, we are beautiful, and at times we can conflict, which is great because that's what it means to be human. And the Bible is incredibly human, which is good news because there's times where we feel like we have to be something outside of ourselves in order to be sacred or holy or good or worth being loved by God. Where, in fact, we can be exactly who we are and have access to this wild, divine love. And so um, the reason that we read these passages, and some of us might have some feelings, and, and again, I talked about this last week at more at length. We were all at different places when it comes to not just God, but when it comes to the Bible. Because you might be hearing me like, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Bible. Other people are like, nope, put it down a long time ago. But the reason that we might have some conflicting um, feelings about the Bible is somewhere along the line, someone told us, um, the Bible says it, I believe it, right? Anyone heard that before? It's like, Chris, I don't need to read more about it because I can have a plain reading 
about enslaved people, you know, identifying with Christ by suffering. That's just, that's how it says. And that view comes from the idea called inerrancy. And again, if you want to hear more, last week we delve more into it. But in short, inerrancy means that there's no errors, that God, like, um, told um, uh, Hosea, let's see, right, Hosea, minor prophet, and like whispered in Hosea's ear, and Hosea wrote down, because he was inspired, exactly what God said. And if God said that, who are we to argue, right? Who are you to argue what the Bible says if it's all totally true? The problem is, if it's all literal, we have a lot of problems, especially what we just read about, right? And so, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the words of Jesus, and we're going to see how that possibly transformed, or not possibly, how it did transform a group of people, and then through the Bible itself, see how there was this progression and change, and why there was change. So you're going to get a little bit more teaching, Chris, today, you're going to get a little bit of preaching, Chris. And then we'll get back to preaching, Chris, where I'll cry in front of everyone and all that stuff. So um, we'll, we'll get back there soon enough, don't worry. Um, so I'm going to be um, borrowing from the work of Elizabeth Schusler uh, Florenza, right? I, um, I, I read some of her material, and this is where um, this idea of how this transformation took place. So first is this, all right? In Mark 3, Jesus says, Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother, right? So whoever does the will of God, that's where we find this belonging, which is critically important because um, at this time, and I... To a sense now as well, but especially um, back then, your family name, your family system, your family's reputation was everything, right? It was your upward mobility or lack thereof. Their reputation, their um, uh, economics, their beliefs, their history, it was like, it was, it was just who you are, right? So people in this area... Um, they're like, hey, what's your last name? I'm like, oh, I'm a solder. And people are like, hmm. I'm like, no, 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 not those solders. <laughs> there's, a, there's another group of solders that people are like, hmm. And we're part of, um, we're some amazing group of solders. But even my name has a reputation. The Winters have a reputation of being the greatest athletes from Floodwood, is what Dietrich tells me. So uh, <laughs> no, no, none better than, than Dietrich Winter. Um, uh, and so th that that is where you found your belonging. You see stories uh, in the New Testament of people saw someone who was paralyzed, and they're like, whoa, what did his parents do? What did his family do that deserved him to experience this? Because if your grandpa or your great-grandpa or your great-grandma did something, it'd be similar to what we call karma, right? It wouldn't just be like, oh, that's just how his body is that's just genetics it's like no the the curse or the, the curse or the blessing the family is going to go from person to person example in luke 11 um, it says as jesus was saying these things a woman in the crowd called out blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you right which is kind of a random thing to yell out at jesus and jesus responded in verse 28 blessed rather are those who hear the word of god and obey it this lady um, this is where Jesus does the Lord's Prayer. He does some other teaching. And uh, they're inspired by the person of Christ. They're saying, if this is Jesus and this is great, his mother must be amazing, right? Because there's this generational passing of um, beautiful or challenging things. And what's, what the, the, the hard part about this is if your family name didn't lead you to the beautiful places, Right? If your family name and history did not have this upward mobility, 
It didn't give you access to these parts of the temple, to these Roman emperors or to these Roman citizens, to these places where you could have influence and access to more power or money. Your family name kind of just kept you down marginalized. It just kept you in this system. And uh, one of my professors, Dr. Hoke, he calls it um, uh, cruel optimism. How talking to a whole system of people who are maybe pushed more to the side saying, hey, if you just are good, hey, if you just follow along in this system, hey, if you just stay quiet, hey, if you just play along, man, it's going to help you just move right up there with us, the beautiful people, which that's not how it works. So Jesus here is redefining of what belonging looks like. I say it way too often. Um, I should get a tattoo on it, but Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is saying there's a new way of being human. Because now, instead of, and he's not shaming your family system. He's not shaming and saying you have to burn down your family. He's saying, hey, that's a way that can bring belonging, and that's worked for some people. It is clearly has not worked for all people. And now this sense of belonging, this sense of, of moving and being inspired is now tied to those, right, who do the work of Christ. And what's the work of Christ? Moving in love. It's showing up. It's seeing a need and doing something about it. It's about embodying that divine love wherever you go. Now you have this sense of, of connectedness and belonging that transcends just these systems that have kept people down. Now, this is great news, right? When Jesus says, um, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, who does that benefit most? The last, right? <laughs> Collectively, we say the, the last. Who it, who it um, also threatens the most is those in front. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. And so um, when Jesus is moving around and doing these things and saying these things, people are believing him. People are believing him, and they're making this transformation. For the people who said they were in the back of the line and Jesus says the last will be first, there's people at the end of the line who have been marginalized who actually believe it. And they're like, we mean, I can walk around like we're equals? I, I, I can actually like show up into those spaces and feel like I could be believed? You're telling me I could have access to actually making some sort of changes in my family or in myself or in this system. And if you give people a little bit of hope, right, it's intoxicating. And that's beautiful. And this is how there is this, you call that revolution. Jesus is inspiring people saying, Let's, in this kingdom of God, we are equals. And so if you read the book of Acts, this spreads like wildfire. It's going around everywhere. And there's a group of people who see this and they're like, hey, we're not the biggest fans of this. And this is like around like 75 to right, right around 100 of where um, we read this letter, Titus. Now, I'm going to read you Titus, um, and then you're going to have a lot of really good feelings, especially if you are a, a female or you're a non-male. This is, you're, you're going to feel all the feels. It's going to be really great. Yeah, I'm setting you up. So here's, here's what Titus says. You, however, this is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and in sound faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, to not be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God, right? Do you, can, you, can you see the difference, how they say, older men, you're strong in endurance, and you are going to be faithful, and it's like, and the older women, 
how much wine are you drinking? Stop gossiping, right? And your job is just to get the younger woman in line to be subject to their husbands. Why? So you can show the love of God. Moving on. Verse 6. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. Titus, in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9, teach, um, Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and attractive. Barf city, right? So this, this book, along with Ephesians, along with um, First Peter, these are what we call house codes, right? These are called house codes, and they explicitly tell you this is what it looks like to be a leader. This is what it looks like to be a, a good male. This is what it looks like to be a, a woman. This is what it looks like to be a wife. And funny who they always benefit. This is what it looks like to be a master. This is what it looks like to be an enslaved person. What are we supposed to do with this? If you read this, this is like not something you're going to like, if you're doing like a, a Bible study, a small group, you're not like, hey guys, you know where we want to start? Let's read through Titus. Let's, let's do this. This is going to really bring those people in, right? So how are we supposed to take this seriously? Well, I'll give you a couple ideas. If you look at the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus and how inspired, and you look at Paul, right? We read last week, Paul, Galatians 3, verses 28, I believe, where Paul says there's neither male or female, there's neither Jew or Greek, there's neither enslaved or master in Christ Jesus, how do you read that, and um, what people, um, where we start is, um, this is attributed to Paul. How can you read this with Paul, and then read Galatians? Because they feel like they go totally opposite, which they do. And this is why many scholars say there's seven epistles written by Paul that we call authentic um, Pauline letters, and they have a very similar Christology, theology, tone, even their sentence structures, right? And it's very universal. It's very empowering of women. Romans 16, Paul highlights nine different women who are going to be these powerful, dynamic leaders in their, their communities or ecclesias, right? So you read that, and then also you read Titus, in, or you read Ephesians 5, or you read uh, first, um, first Peter, you get a very different tone. And what a lot of scholars believe is that this was a community of people who were Paul's, like, students or disciples. And maybe they saw down the horizon of what's happening with these people called Christians and the teachings of Christ and how the last shall be first and the first shall be last, that the meek shall inherit the earth, how there's belonging, not just in your family, there's belonging in this dynamic community. And you could see how maybe those at the front of the line started organizing. They started looking around saying, whoa, 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 people back in line, can you just stay in back of the line, please? No, you don't get to come at our table. Who do you, th who do you think you are? We don't, this is not how it works. And so they would do what groups do now. You'd like start like a, a super PAC, and you'd fund hundreds of million dollars in it. And you'd buy ads for the Super Bowl. And you would have maybe some politicians and lobbyists like reminding all the beautiful people, remember who the beautiful people are? It's us. Remember who's not? It's people who aren't us. We do this to this day, right? We try moving and influencing people. Why? to retain power. And why do we want to retain power? Because we are the worst at giving up power. Because we're afraid of what it's going to cost us. Who am I if I don't have access to this? Who am I if I'm not entitled to this? Well, at the same time, there's a whole group of people saying, 
well, who are we if we don't have access to the same health care? Who are we if we don't have access to be able to show up as uh, transgendered people? Do we have, in Tennessee, do we have to hide who we are and, and being afraid that we're going to be imprisoned? Right? The last shall be first. And so what this group of people does is write this letter because they don't want to lose. They borrow Paul's name because Paul is believable. Paul makes you feel good. Well, not as much anymore, but like at that time, right? Paul feels good. Paul has like some um, just built-in believability. And it worked, right? There's this the, a place where enslaved people and women and people who are marginalized it had equal footing, it had voice, and then we hit here and we hear something different. So again, back to the original question, what do we do? Right? I, I don't want to rip it out. I take the Bible incredibly seriously. And I don't have to, like, do some mental gymnastics and say, well, no, maybe Paul was really talking about this. It's not. It's, it is plain of what he was trying to say. So what we can do about it is look at it honestly and believe it. And believe that people have used words that have violence over people's bodies for centuries. Right? We can read this and say, oh, yeah, who, who does this benefit? If you center the people who have the power, you're going to see, oh, Titus is trying, or whoever wrote this is trying to favor the, the patriarch of the family. But if you center who it costs the most, this is where the Bible, for me, comes alive. What is it about these older women that is a threat to these men? It says, do not be slanderous and do not drink too much wine. What is it when these women get together and drink wine that maybe they're being honest, that they call slanderous? Right? What, what is it that they're willing to say to one another that they, don't, that they don't often have permission to talk and say what it's like to be their lived experience? What is a threat that a younger woman, right, to be subject to her husband, what, 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 it, what is the threat of her having agency over herself? Right? What, what does it cost for enslaved people, it says, to not steal, to, to be mindful? Why? Because you want to make God attractive. What, if, what is it about them wanting to be able to feed their kids or have a totally different trajectory for their, for their kids, their kids, and their kids at some point that is a threat to someone like Titus? You center those stories, those bodies, those people, it changes it. Because now we can read it and say, oh, yeah, this is toxic, right? And what is the holy inspiration thing is that we can do and be better. So imagine this. What this group of people is trying to tell Titus is, hey, Titus, let's build, this is metaphorically, this is not, <laughs> Titus wasn't building shelters, right? But let's say that they're saying, Titus, we want you to build these, like, nice little shacks, and um, that's where we're going to put these women. That's where we're going to put these people. This is where we're going to put those enslaved people. And this is all they're ever going to know, but they're going to believe this is all they could ever be. And so for generations, they're in this, night, this little shack, and there's the door, and they're looking at it and saying, it's, it's got to be locked. Why? Because they've told me repeatedly over and over again, this is all, all I get to be. I get to be small, I get to be quiet, and I just have to mind my place. And we're going to let these men have, like, do all the holy work. Well, what you find is that maybe they started hearing someone on the other side of the door say, come out and play. Maybe they heard some music. Maybe they heard some laughter. And so they're like, well, I, there's no way that door's open. Actually, if that door's open, there's just going to be a series of doors that are going to be locked there. I, I don't even want to take the time or energy to see if that's open. But maybe after so long, they finally get up the courage, and what happens, they open that door, and it's not locked. In fact, it's been open the whole time. And as they open up, they see this wild, expansive field 
of where there is people laughing, there's people belonging, there's people eating, there's a place where they can move wildly all over this world, right? And how, imagine how freeing, liberating that would be if you were constrained and told to be quiet, and the whole time, just outside, there's been this totally different universe. That would be liberating. That would be transformative. And you know who wrote that? Paul, <laughs> in Romans 5. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. And that comes from Roman, a Pauline letter. That tone of freedom, inclusion, belonging, and agency is radically different from Titus. So when I read Titus, this is what empowers me or inspires me, is we have these wide open spaces where we can find belonging and love and transformation. And what we can do, right, is start, and when I practice it early, I, I want to give, don't literally, Adia, go knock on people's doors, right? This is a metaphor. Right? Come on, play! Come on, play! <laughs> right? Is what I think the church is to be? Um, I, I, not limited to the church, not at all. I don't believe that. I'm processing with you all right now, all right? Uh, what I think, um, people who move in divine love, let's use that, right? People who move in divine love, what I think that we are to be is to go sing those songs and pound on those doors and remind people there's this wide open space. What culture or patriarchy or racism or uh, what, the, the systems that oppress people have kept people in those small spaces, we get to, pe get to be the people that sing a different song. So I'm going to pray. And again, we're going to wrap up. If you want to process what we talked about, if you want to talk about the Westminster building and moving, um, I will be here. So let's pray. So God, we welcome you. And I thank you for the wide open spaces. And uh, honestly, like, it is really easy for me to, like, keep going back into that little shack. Because <laughs> it's, like, safe, and I know what to expect, and it's, like, limited. And I thank you, God, that I can, like, still have access to move into those wide open spaces, and that's where I want to live. And I pray that you'd use us. Actually, before we get that, I pray for people who are here or listening where they feel like they're afraid to see if the door's really going to be open or not. And they've tried maybe a couple times and someone shamed them or someone told them to sit down, said you're never going to be that, you can't be that. And with that has come pain or trauma. And I ask God that you'd come and you'd bring hope. Especially for those people who are at the end of the line. And they've heard that promise of like the last will be first. They're like, yeah, I've tried and people keep telling me it's not true. I ask for that divine hope that will inspire us to move and have agency over ourselves. And then that you'd use us, you'd use this community where we can sing a different song. We can invite people from all different parts of the line to move towards this place of equity and love and justice and liberation. And we know, God, that that is your heart and we partner with you in it. And we love you. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, friends. Thank you for joining me in this space, and have a good rest of your weekend.